Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I fear without it I would be so lost. But it's, Lord, with it I am so blessed. I'm so enriched. My life is abundant because of your word. Because it tells me and teaches me and reminds me of who you are and what you've done. And how I can be just even a small part of that. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity this morning that we can gather here and we can gather online. Lord, so that we can say there's nothing that will stop your word from going out. And we thank you for demonstrating your power even over all the forces that are going on right now. There is nothing greater than you. Thank you. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word and we study in chapter 18 of Exodus today, Lord, that you would reveal to us what it is that you would have us learn today, that you would speak into our hearts, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would energize us, Lord, that you would convict us and change us so that we might leave today even a little bit different, even a little bit more transformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Take these words now, these few meager thoughts, Lord, that I've compiled, and do something amazing with them this morning. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, last week we saw in chapter 17 much of what I just said. <laughs> the, they, they come to a place where there's no water. They cry out to God. In fact, they stopped asking and they start demanding. Give us water that we might drink. And God, in his ultimate mercy and compassion, he gives them not just some water, but a lot of water. If we have that picture again, um, can you guys put it up of the rock? Okay, I brought my pointer today. This is really far. There's, there's what I believe to be the rock that Moses struck. See that little guy right there? That rock is way up there, and even up there, it's about 60 feet tall. I watched some more archaeological videos on this, and even some more explanation about this rock. That rock, is the, it looks as if, and if you were able to get up, and some people have, and I watched a video about this, where they go up and they can climb right into the middle of that rock. And it, they said it looks as though the way the rock is formed, that it was split right up the middle, as you can see right there. The inside of it is all smooth. It's a huge piece of granite, but the inside from the bottom to the top is all smooth. And all of those rocks right down in front, they've all been smoothed out as if there's a lot of water had washed over front of them. This is an area that gets very little rain. And yet you've got all of these smooth rocks and this huge piece of granite. Now it says in Psalm 78, when it's talking about this very time, it says that you split the rock and caused water from the depths to wash up and flow down into many rivers. Right? This wasn't a trickle. 
This wasn't a little rock. This was a geyser that came up to provide water, which they believe flowed down into this spot where this guy was, and to form a lake, there was so much water. Now, you're talking three million people. A trickle of water coming out of a rock. They'd still be waiting in line to get a sip. Not with that. That's a geyser of water supplying that amount of water for uh, three million people. Then what we see is the Amalekites attack. We're in the second part of chapter 17, the Amalekites attack. Now imagine you're a Bedouin nation living in a very arid place. And all of a sudden, there's rumor of, and maybe you even saw, a geyser of water shoot up out of the land and create a new lake. What are you going to do? You're going to go and try and take over that water because they're probably thinking, we're the ones who were here. This is our land first. That's our water. And so the Amalekites come and they attack. Now we know because we talked about this last week and, we looked, and you can look into Deuteronomy chapter 25 that it says, remember when the Amalekites came and they attacked from the rear and they attacked the weakest of the bunch. And so they didn't come head on. They didn't come and challenge. They snuck in from the back, the rear flanks. They attacked those people who were weakest. Now last week we talked about the idea that the Amalekites all throughout the Bible represent the battle with the flesh. That's because the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Remember Esau, Jacob and Esau, the twins that were born? And Jacob was the one that, you know, well, he was the dirty, sneaky thief. That's what his name means. Heel catcher, supplanter, dirty, sneaky thief. He was the one that tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright because Esau came. And, you know, a, Esau is a picture of, like, flesh and females. That's Esau. Flesh and females. He wanted to feed his flesh, and he went to satisfy it with also with women. And so he comes in from the fields. He's like, oh, I'm really tired. And Jacob's like, well, I've got this stew over here. It's really, really good. And Esau says, give me it. Give me because I'm starving. I'm going to die. I'm starving so bad. And so Jacob says, okay, but you have to give me your birthright. Um, and he says, fine, take it. It means nothing to me. And he, he feeds his flesh. He gives up his birthright to feed his flesh. And so from that point on, there's a rift. And so um, Esau goes and he gets married several times and has children. And some of those children become the Amalekite nation. And there is always uh, friction between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And that's God saying also to us, the Amalekites who represent our flesh, there is always friction between our flesh and our spirit our flesh and our faith. There is always a battle. In fact, the Bible says that there will never be peace between the Amalekites and the Israelites in the same way that there will never be peace between what your flesh wants and what your spirit desires. There will never be peace there. One will always win out over the other. And if you look at this example that we looked at last week, we can see that the Amalekites struck at those who were weakest. Those at the end of the line, those farthest away from Moses. And when you look at this, you say, okay, we're talking about our flesh and doing battle with our flesh, the spirit versus the flesh. Um, and the enemy coming in and saying, oh, I'm going to use your flesh as a, as a weapon against yourself. What is he attacking? He is going to attack the weakest areas in your life. Where are your weaknesses? What are those places in your life that you have withheld from surrendering over to God? Those are your areas that he's going to come in and that he's going to use your flesh as a weapon against you and he's going to try and attack you through those areas. 
your weak points. I don't know what they are for you. I know what they are for me. You know what they are for you. Those are the areas that you maybe have forgotten about or maybe you're purposely holding them back to say, I've given my life to God except for this little thing, habit, thing that I like to do, fleshly thing that I don't really want to give over, whatever it is. And he's going to come in and he's going to attack that part of it. The other interesting part of that is that they were the ones that were farthest away from Moses. Moses was way up here, probably at the uh, beginning of the head of the line here. And then you've got three million people all the way back here. And then you've got the weakest in the back. The ones also that are, um, what did you say, Jack? Carrying the most stuff, right? Jack told me the other day, those are the people also that were probably dragging the most stuff along with them from Egypt. So they're lagging behind, right? And so take a look and see. You know, those are the ones that are the furthest away from the word of God. Moses had the words of God. The ones who were attacked by the Amalekites that were lagging behind, they were the farthest from the word and likely dragging around the most worldly stuff with them. And so you feel like you're being attacked or your flesh is overcoming you. How close are you to the word of God? Has it become just a Sunday morning thing? Or is it something that you're in every day? Are you trying to drag along with the word of God all of your worldly baggage as well? And you're just like, well, I need this, and I need that, and I'm going to just put this on here and wait. Hey, guys, wait up. And you're walking along with all of your worldly stuff, and here comes your fleshly enemy because you're lagging, you're lacking. Now, Moses was told by God, if you go up on this hill and you raise your arms like this and you hold up the rod that I've given you, that while you're in battle, uh, while the battle is going on between, between Joshua and the people of Israel and the Amalekites, while your arms are raised, they found that they prevailed in battle. But when he dropped his arms, the Amalekites prevailed in battle. And so what we see is Moses standing there in what I said was the traditional stature of prayer. Arms raised, face lifted to God. Not knees bowed, hands folded but hands up, face to God in surrender and prayer to God. And while he was in this position, they won. While he's dropped his hands because, you know, I, I mean, tried to hold my hands up for one worship song and my arms got heavy. Imagine having to stand there all day long and his arms start to get droopy. And as they go down, the Amalekites start to win. And so you see, it says that Aaron and Hur came and they stood alongside of him and held up his hands. Aaron, mountain of strength. Hur, liberty. God's freedom. Strength from God and God's freedom are holding up Moses' hands in prayer and surrender. And while they're doing that, they are winning the battle over flesh. You want to know how to defeat your flesh? You get in to a posture of prayer and let your arms be held up by God's strength and God's freedoms. But that's not the only thing. Who goes into battle for Moses, leading Moses' army? Who goes in? Joshua goes into battle. He is leading, actually down in the, the valley, he is leading the battle and he has with him a sword. Now, Joshua... Do you know what the Greek version of the name Joshua is? It's Jesus. Did you know that? The Greek form of Joshua is Jesus. So Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, Joshua. 
And there's always, throughout the entire Bible, there is this picture of Moses being the word of God, Joshua being that picture of Jesus, the, the person that leads them in. In fact, at the end of, the end of Exodus, um, we're going to see that Moses isn't the one that takes them into the promised land, but it is Joshua who leads them in. The word of God didn't lead them into, the, uh, into paradise, but it was Jesus that led them in. And so in the battle against your flesh, it's not just prayer being held up by strength and liberty by God, but it is also doing battle with the sword at your side, following Jesus. What an amazing picture that is that God gives us in that couple of verses in that battle against the Amalekites. Isn't that cool? Well, chapter 18. It says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Um, all right. So here we see Jethro's, Jethro comes, this is Moses' father-in-law. We know this from the beginning of, um, of Exodus. And now it, it says that he's heard all that has happened with Israel, all the stuff that's been going on. Now, I, I believe that the plagues of Egypt were spread out 10 or 12 months. Um, and so this is probably now we know it's at least a month after that because it said in the last chapter. So maybe we're 10, 12, 13 months after Moses basically left Jethro to go into Egypt. Okay, so almost a year, somewhere around a year. All right? Guys, if you could put the map up for me. Okay. This is a little refresher course. And maybe you all know this, but this is interesting. This right here, see where I'm pointing? Okay, that's Midian. That is the land of Midian right there. Okay, there's no disputing that. You can look on a map and see that, all right? Now, in case you forgot, I'm just going to trace Moses' path right now from the beginning to where we are. So Moses, in, in Egypt, see up there where it says Cairo? So Moses right up there, born 40 years as a prince of Egypt, kills an Egyptian, has to run away. So where does he run? Where does he run? Midian, remember? He goes to Midian, and so he goes like this, do, 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 right across the top into Midian. Because we know that that's where he meets Jethro's daughters at the well, right? So he goes into Midian. Now, he stays there, he marries Zipporah, he becomes a shepherd of the flock of Jethro, right? Um, while, he's, while he's tending this flock, he goes up onto the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai, right? It says Horeb in the book, but Horeb is also Mount Sinai. So um, this area right here is traditionally called the Sinai Desert or the Wilderness of Sinai or however you want to And they put Mount Sinai right around here somewhere, okay? I don't think so, but here's why. Here's some logic. Moses went from there all the way over here to Midian, okay? Was a shepherd for 40 years. It says that he went up onto the mountain of God, and that's where he saw the burning bush and was told to go into Egypt. So that would mean that he went from here one day. He said, I think I'm going to take the sheep on a really long walk, and went all the way back up here, all the way down here, and then came here and went up onto the mountain. 
Seem logical to you? No, not to me either. That seems like a really, really long way to take the sheep one day. Now, there's a mountain right here um, that I believe is actually the Mount Sinai. And actually, Paul identifies it in Galatia. He says that the mountain of God was in Arabia. Okay? So I believe that what happened was he was here. He went up onto this mountain, which is right about here. Um, God spoke to him through the burning bush, told him to go back. He went back up over to Egypt. All of the plagues happened. The exodus happened. Now, they believe, if this is Sinai wilderness right here, they believe that he crossed, <coughs> that he crossed the Red Sea way up there. Okay? But that doesn't really make sense with all the other stuff that happens because what, what I believe is he went in here, he left through the exodus, he came down here into this wilderness... He crossed over right about where we looked at Nueve Beach, that area right there, the Gulf of Agrabah, into this wilderness where we saw that he goes into a place called Elam with 12 fountains and 70 palm trees, which, if you look on Google Maps today, is located right there. You can look it up. Travels around this area. Oh, he goes to the place of Mara with bitter water, which is also right there. Okay. Travels around finds that rock formation, which is right there, and then lives in this plain area at the foot of Mount Sinai, right there, where they have found altars and pillars and etchings of cows um, and all sorts of other stuff, none of which you find here. So what that, that, now what we're seeing is that Jethro comes from Midian to meet him, that would mean that if they were wandering over here, Jethro would be like, oh, I heard Moses, and he would travel all the way back up here and come all the way down here um, to meet Moses here. But which makes more sense that they were already over here in this area, in the land of Midian, and Jethro then comes and meets him right there. Does that make sense? I mean, that's a lot. When you go in, and you could try and find this on your own, go in and Google traditional journey of Moses and Mount Sinai, it's going to show you that they, they came here, they went down here, they came up there, they came back down here, and then they went back up there, rather than coming down, crossing over, and then going up to the promised land. The fact is that there's no evidence in the Sinai Peninsula that they were even there. It's just a mountain that was picked and named rather than to actually look at the evidence. Now, I could be wrong. I'm probably not but I could be wrong. Jethro comes down and he meets them while they're camped here in this place um, after about a year. It says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. Do you remember that? You remember when that happened? See, remember, God told Moses... Um, you're going to go, you're going to meet with Aaron, you're going to take, you're going to you know, go, go and see Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him all this. And they start on their way, and it says when they were to the encampment that God struck Moses near to death. And we talked about the fact that Moses was out of compliance with what he was supposed to do because one son was circumcised, but one son wasn't. And remember, Zipporah then uh, circumcised her son right on the spot, and she uh, threw the foreskin at him and said, you are a bloody husband to me. And then there's kind of a pause, and then Aaron's in the scene. And it's right there that I believe that Moses sent her back with her, his two sons to live with her father while he went through all of these plagues with Egypt. 
So now he's back in the land of Midian. Jethro comes with his wife, with Moses' wife and his two sons, and he meets them in the land of Midian right there. And it says in verse 3, with her two sons of whom the name was Gershom, for I have been a stranger in a strange land, and the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so those are, remember, those are the two sons that Moses had, and the first one he names stranger in a strange land. Great name uh, for his first son, because quite literally he felt like a stranger in a strange land. He was he was born and raised in Egypt. The second son he names Eleazar, saying, the, uh, God is my help. El, Eleazar, God is my help. That is a great name, Eleazar. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And what is that mountain of God? It's Sinai. Now, he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. I really, really love that because in this passage and in the next several passages, we're going to begin to see even more character of Moses, the leader that God chose. Um, his father-in-law comes, who he hasn't seen in a year, and he goes out and he falls down at his feet and he kisses him. Um, there's a real, I don't know, a sense of humility, wouldn't you say, in that, where he goes out to his father-in-law and he kind of subjects himself to the authority of his father-in-law within that relationship. I think that's really beautiful and shares a lot about the character of Moses. You know, Moses is the leader, God's leader, of three million people. And yet he comes out humbly before his father-in-law and falls down at his feet and, 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 and kisses him. I love that about Moses. I mean, it's easy to start to paint anybody into a box, right? To say, well, Moses is this or Moses is that. Or, and forget that Moses was uh, the leader of the uh, Egyptian army that then became nothing as a shepherd, only, uh, only in charge of a flock of sheep which weren't his, to being the one that God chose to lead his people, not just out of uh, bondage, but into freedom. I could tell you, that can mess with your head, don't you think? I mean, at some point, Moses was like, God, I'm not anybody. I can't do anything. And God is like, you're right, but I can do it. And somehow, Moses is able to hold on to that humility that God has said, yes, you're nothing, but I'm everything. So you stick with me, and you'll be able to do all these things that I do. But Moses still is able to hold on to, at least one part of his character indicates humility. And I love that. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Okay, so I kind of picture this. It's like two guys. They haven't seen each other in like a year. And they were like, hey, he's like Jethro, and he's going to... It's like, so you good? Good? And Jethro's like... I'm good, you good? Good. All right, let's go eat. And I think that's about the extent, because that's how guys do it. Like, I could not see my brother for months and months and months and be like, hey man, how's it going? Good. All right, you? Good. All right, we're caught up. Nice. And so Jethro uh, and Moses, they meet and they ask, how are you doing? I'm well. Are you doing well? Yes, I'm well. Okay, let's go in. Are you guys hungry? Let's eat. And, and that's what they do. 
And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them. Now, I think this is amazing because this, again, shows you some insight into Moses' character. What does it say? He sits down with his father-in-law and he says, this, look at what's the, the first thing that he tells him. The first thing. All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He starts off with, look at, let me tell you about all the amazing things that God did for us. I don't see anything here that actually says, Moses said, well, I let everybody out. You should have seen me at the Red Sea. That was impressive. And then this battle last weekend, just sat there. And when I did this, we were winning. And when I did this, we just, I was doing this and this just to try it out. I don't see any of that here. What I see with Moses starting off with saying, look at all that God did for us to get us away from the Egyptians, to get us and to take care of us. And then he says, he shared all the hardship that had come upon them along the way. And so he says, he starts off with, look at all the amazing things that God did. And he says, you know what? It wasn't all easy though. There were some hardships that we had to go through. There were some times when we didn't have water. There were some times when everybody was, you know, pretty upset that they, we didn't have any food. Um, there, were, uh, there was another time when we didn't have water. Um, it wasn't easy. It was scary at the edge of the Red Sea where we didn't know quite what was gonna happen. Um, and he shares all the hardships. But he follows it up again with how the Lord had delivered them. Now, what, I, what I don't see, and, and again, I think this is to Moses' credit, it doesn't say, and it doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I'm kind of just going by what it says here. I don't see that it says, and Moses complained to his father-in-law about all the stiff-necked people that he was leading out of. I don't see anywhere here where he says, you're not going to believe how awful these people are. All they do is complain. All they do is, uh, you know, shake their fist at me. They tried to stone me one time, or at least they thought they wanted to. What he says is, God did this. There were some times that were hard, but God delivered us. That, I give Moses a lot of credit, don't you? When you look at that and say, man, this is a man of integrity. This is a man of quality. And I once heard a story of this guy whose dad was a, a, a preacher. And he said, I never heard my dad say a bad word about a single person ever, ever. I never heard him talk badly about anybody. And they said one day they went to a, a church meeting and there was a, a preacher there and the, the person telling the story said, this guy was not good. He wasn't good. He, it was boring, he was long, he was dull, everything. He wasn't good. And so he thought, ha ha. I got my dad now. There's no way that he could say anything good. And uh, so he went to his dad and he said, uh, Dad, what did you think of that preacher today? And, um, you know, his dad kind of looked at him and he said, Well, you know, I'm sure God's using him. And he thought that his dad was going to say some negative thing because he was setting it up. And this guy had such integrity that he never uttered a bad word about somebody. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. Do you guys want to be that person that has so much integrity that you think, I'm never going to let a foul word about anybody else come out of my mouth? That's not easy, is it? Don't we disguise it sometimes? Well, I'm just venting. I'm just venting to you. Just you. It's just me and you. I'm just venting right here. 
you probably can vent without saying something not nice about somebody else. It's hard, though. We have to be intentional about that, don't we? Don't we? We have to make that a thing and say, you know what? I will not let a, a mean word, a bad word about anybody else come out of my mouth so that anybody else hears it. And that's integrity. And I think Moses had that kind of integrity. Now look at verse 9. It says that Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for, for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. And Jethro blessed, said, Bless the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people out from under the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro hears all that, that the Lord had done and how he had delivered all of the people out of the hands of Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness to this place where at the base of the mountain of God, and he rejoices for them. I'm sure that, that Moses said to um, Jethro, his father-in-law, God has shown me his plan. He's leading us into the promised land, the land that's flowing with milk and honey. No more struggling to find water. No more coming upon bitter water and having to pray for it to be made sweet. None of that. The land of milk and honey. That's where God said he is leading us. And Jethro says, I am so happy for you guys. I am rejoicing with you. But you know what's amazing? Jethro was not included in that promise. Do you understand? He wasn't saying, yes, let's all go into the promised land. He wasn't included in the promise, and he was rejoicing for what God had done for them, even though none of it had been poured out onto him. And so it's an amazing person that could sit there and say, I hear all these amazing things going on. I'm going to rejoice with you, even though I'm not partaking in those things, and even though that promise isn't extended to me, I can rejoice in your blessings. I can rejoice in your blessings. We don't know what kind of situation Jethro was in. Maybe things were good. Maybe things were tough. I don't know. I don't know. And that's the point, isn't it? What I see is regardless of where Jethro was in his life and what was going on, he was rejoicing at the blessings that were extended to the Israelites, not him. Are you able to do that? Are you able to rejoice at someone else's blessings even though they haven't been extended to you? Do you even know what that means? If something really good happens to somebody else and you're like, that's amazing. And deep down inside you're like, how come I don't get that? I'm reminded of a passage in Acts where Peter and John are um, now filled with the Holy Spirit and they're out and they're preaching and, and the high priest and the chief priest and the Pharisees, they come and they take them up and they throw them in prison. And in the middle of the night, an angel comes and says, I don't think so. And he opens up the door and Peter and John walk out. And then he actually closes the door and locks it back up. And they go back out the next day into the middle of the town and they start preaching again. And people are amazed when they hear them because they're like, these, th these are uneducated guys and yet they have such wisdom. Clearly they've been with God. And the high priest and the chief priest and the Pharisees look at them and it says that they're jealous of them. They're angry, not because they're preaching on a Sabbath, but because they're being blessed. They have a preaching that's anointed, and the people are drawn to it. And instead of rejoicing and saying, look at all these people being drawn to God, they're jealous. They're jealous of what's being done through them because they say, uh, and later on, the, the similar group will say, if everybody goes to him, nobody will follow us. 
And they, unlike Jethro, are unable to rejoice at the blessings poured out on somebody else. So search your heart. When those around you are being blessed, and maybe you're not being blessed in the same way, are you able to rejoice with that person without in your heart thinking, how come I'm not blessed the same way? I do this and I do this and I do this. How come I'm not blessed that way? Maybe that's in your job situation or in your school or in your friends and family or relatives, or maybe it's within a ministry. And to say, you know, I work too, or I do this or I do that, and how come I'm not being blessed in the same way? Jethro comes, and he just is so happy for them. But there's more there. Because it says now, in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in this very thing in which he had behaved proudly, he was above them. And so Jethro, hearing all of what God has done, he says, Now I know. That the Lord is, is above, the Lord is greater than all other gods. Now, okay, so there's a lot of commentary going in a lot of directions about this. This is what I believe. I'm going to share it with you. You don't have to agree with me. But this is what I think. Jethro is a priest of Midian. Remember it says that. Midians are a descendant of Abraham. Right? After Sarah died... Abraham remarried Keturah. Keturah had several children, and one of them was a son named Midian. And the Midian went on and formed this nation of the Midianites, or, or this area of, uh, in Midian, also called the Kenites. And so the Midians were uh, descendants of Abraham. Now with that likely came the worship of Yeshua, uh, Yahweh, Right? We, we, it's not that far to think that they had worshipped God because Abraham had passed that down through his family. But it's not also hard to believe that with that maybe comes also some additional idol worship. In fact, you remember before God called Abraham out, his family were pagan worshippers. Right? God demonstrated himself to Abraham and Abraham then declared God the one true God and passed that down through his family. But as that line goes down, it's likely that there was some other idol worship introduced into Jethro's life. I mean, he's, he's worshiping God, but I think what he's saying here is there were some other ones in his life as well. Now, that's not too hard to imagine because even though the Israelites were worshiping Yahweh while they were in Egypt, we see that with them when they go out, they also bring uh, some, uh, some degree of idol worship with them along. And maybe that wasn't them. Maybe that was the mixed mixed multitude that was with them, but it seemed like there was a lot of them worshiping that golden calf that we're going to get to in a little while. And so what's really cool is that Jethro hears of all that God did, hears how he spared them from the Egyptians, brought them through the Red Sea, provided water, provided food, um, just preserved them, all this. He hears all of it and he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Remember, we specifically went through and talked about how God directed the plagues, at least in part, towards the Egyptian gods and broke them down one by one by one, saying, if you were truly a god of the water, of the flies, of the dirt, of the air, of the whatever, you would be able to prevent this plague, and they weren't able to do it. 
And God broke down their false gods one by one. And that's what he's saying here. And Jethro is having a realization in this moment that the Lord, Yahweh, that you're talking about is greater than all other gods. And that is an amazing revelation that he has personally right there. But I will tell you that this is the same personal revelation that every single one of us must have. The Lord is greater than all other gods. That is where we all, if you're a believer today, you've all come to that place to said that the Lord is greater than anything else I've worshipped. And if you haven't done that, then that is what you're trying to decide right now. Are all the other gods in my life, the things that I worship, all the other things that are important to me, are they greater than God or is God greater than those things? And I'm telling you that he is greater than all those things. But you need to come to that same res uh, revelation. All of those words. You must reach that same conclusion. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now, Jethro might have said, well, I've heard that said before. He might have even said, I suspected that was the case. He might have even said, I was taught that from my youth, but somewhere along the way I strayed or added some things in, just like you. At some point you might say, well, I've heard people talk about God and his son Jesus who came down. Um, and I suspect there might be something to that. And I've even, you know, I went to Sunday school like lots of times when I was a kid and was even taught, you know, there's God the Father and Jesus and then there's this Holy Spirit guy and they're all there and it's three in one and I'm not sure I understand all that, but I've heard it taught before, but I'm not so sure about it. Just like Jethro, you need to make that same decision. You need to get to that same conclusion. The Lord is greater than all other gods. Anything else you've got going on? And I think, frankly, this situation that we find ourselves in over the last seven or eight weeks has really kind of been God saying, let me just point out some of those things in your life that you're clinging to that are for nothing. Oh, you thought you were healthy? You thought you were wealthy? You thought you had freedoms? You thought you had all these things that you were clinging to? You don't, except through me. That's the realization that Jethro comes to right there, isn't it? Jethro says, yeah, you know what? All these other gods that we had put our trust in, all these other things that we thought would save us, all these other things, there is no one greater than God. And God is greater than all those other things. They've all come to nothing except for God. We sang a song today that says God is still sitting on his throne, isn't he? God is still sitting on his throne. The Bible says that God says that I have a plan. I can see the beginning, the end from the beginning, and whatever it is that I plan to do, I will do. Do y'all believe that? I do. Well, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel and to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And it was so the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. That's a lot. Just imagine, this is what's going on now. Moses goes in, and he sits in the place of judgment, 
And all the people who have some kind of issue that they need Moses to help them decide the dispute, they all line up. And it's a long line because they sit there and they do it from morning until evening. And we're talking three million people. So we know that these people aren't all great at getting along already. And so there's some disputes that rise up. And as they have these disputes, it says that they all come to stand before Moses for judgment. Which is ironic to me because in chapter 2 of Exodus, after Moses had killed the Egyptians, he comes strolling out the next morning and he sees two Israelites fighting with one another. And he says, hey, 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 why are you guys contending with one another? They both turn on him and say, well, who made you prince and judge over us? They did not want Moses to be their judge. Now they're happy to come before Moses. They're happy to have him as their judge because they have a dispute. And really what they're saying is, Moses, could you just tell this guy that I'm right? Would you just tell this guy that I'm right and that he's wrong? And so Moses stands in, sits in a place of judgment over this huge line of people who are coming now on a, on a daily basis with their... Um, disputes. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statues of God and his glory. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good, but you and these people who are with you surely, will surely wear yourselves out, for this sitting is too much for you, and you are not able to perform it for yourself. And so he says, this is too much for you, Moses, and it's too much for these people. Imagine you've got a dispute, and maybe it's legitimate, and you're standing in line all day to hear from Moses, and at the end of the day, he's like, okay, that's enough. And you're like, oh my goodness, go back to your house, get up the next morning thinking, I'm going to get there early, like on Black Friday, and get in line, and you discover there's already 300 people in front of you. are like, again? So Jethro says, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. This is a bad system. He says, listen to my voice now, and I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And, and this is really key, gang, verse 20, and you shall teach them the statues and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. He does something incredible right here because up until this point, what was going on? God, Moses said, I am sharing with the people. Um, it says right here, they come to inquire of God and I make known the statues. And so he basically says, they come to him with a problem and he says, well, this is what God would say or this is what we should do because this is what God says. Jethro was saying, teach them to discern that for themselves. Do you get the difference? You know that saying, give a man a fish, he'll eat a day, teach him to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. Jethro says, instead of just you knowing the word of God, teach them the word of God so they can discern what it is that they're supposed to do. This was a concept that, you know, worked for a while, and then somewhere along the line in history, we lost that. Because the church at some point in history said, um, we're going to put the Bible in a language that nobody can read except us. And in fact, we're going to create laws that say if you're a lay person, you cannot own a Bible. 
so that you can only come to us to know what God says. You're not qualified to know. You haven't studied. You don't speak Latin. You need to come to us and we'll tell you what God is saying. And it's not, this isn't for you. In fact, it's so not for you, we're going to make it illegal for you to even own a Bible. I don't think that's what God intended. I'm reading it here, and it seems like Jethro came with pretty good advice. I said, Moses, teach the people how to discern God's word and let them apply it to their lives. And then in the big issues, they can come to you, he says. Boy, oh boy. And you know what? Moses eventually does take this advice, does it? Because he is a humble leader. But what happened in, in church history is they weren't such humble leaders. And it wasn't that they really cared, I don't believe, that they really cared for the people. What they really cared about is their position and their power. If everybody knows how to discern the word of God, then what do they need me for? They won't listen to me. I'll lose my authority. And if I lose my authority, I lose my power. So let's make sure we write it in Latin. And let's prevent anybody from owning it. And then we've got it all right here. But God prevailed, didn't he? Because God said, all right, printing press. And that was made. And with the invention of the printing press, the Bible was translated and spread out through the whole world. And then you had the ability to actually have a Bible, open it up, and read it, and say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't, I, that thing you're saying, I don't see that anywhere in here. Jethro says, teach them the statutes of the law and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Then secondly, he says, moreover, you shall select from all the people men, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, having, uh, hating covetousness. So he says, go out among all the men and you're going to spread out the work. Instead of there being one judge over all the people, you're going to pick men, men that are honest, that they fear God. That means that they hold God in the such proper perspective that everything they do is under the eyes of God. People, men hating covetousness mean they're not greedy, they're not envious. These are men of quality. Do you know they had elders? Did you know that? Remember that? It says it. Moses and all the elders met, and it just said it right here in verse 12. And then, you know, the verse before, God said, do this in, in sight of all the elders. They had elders. Like, what were those guys doing? But Jethro says, pick out men. Set them in, in charge of those over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, over tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And then it will be that even, every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Whew. That's good news to me. That God said, we're going to put people who are going to help bear the burden. There's another saying you all know. Many hands make light work. That means the more people that are helping, the easier the job is. Right? Let's say, I'm going to just break it down really. It's like a big pile of boulders right here. And I got to move them from here to there. I certainly could do it. I'll pick one up. I'm going to carry it over here. I'll put it down. And I'm going to come over and I'm going to get another one. And I'm going to repeat the process over and over again. And it's hard work and it's sweaty and it takes a long time. But what if y'all came up and we all picked up one boulder and walked it over here and blam, we're done. Same, same accomplishment. 
The work is done. It's been accomplished. But many hands make light work. And Jethro is saying, Moses, you shouldn't be the only one doing all of this. Select people that you trust, that are trustworthy, that fear God, that are not envious or jealous of position, and let them be in a place to help you bear the burden. He says, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go their way in peace. He said, it will be better for everyone, not just you. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, And so they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. But he didn't go empty-handed. Well, literally, he probably did, but maybe not. But he took back with him what? A new revelation about God, didn't he? He took back with him this idea that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And he takes that back with him to Midian, or the land of the Kenites. And I have to believe now that he shares this as a leader of his people, this understanding of who Yahweh is compared to all other gods. I believe this not because I want to, and I do, but because later on there's another Uh, story in the Bible where Samuel comes to Saul who is going into the battle against the Amalekites. We talked about this last week, but he says, you're going to go in, you're going to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And you know, of course, in the end, he lets the king live and that causes the Amalekites to go on. But before he goes in the battle, guess what people he goes to first? Saul goes to the Kenites, which are the Midians, and he says, look, we're about to attack the Amalekites. You got to get out of here so that you're not swept up in this battle. Isn't that cool? God pours out favor on the Midians, I believe, because Jethro goes back with a new understanding of this idea of who God is and shares it with his people, and God blesses them instead of lumping them in with the Amalekites to be defeated. He allows them escape before the attack comes. That's so cool. God is so... Does that? I mean, when you see those things, don't you understand that God is, sees everything? He has everything right here, right here, in his control. I especially need that message in these days because your mind can start to spin right now with all kinds of information and stuff. And that's when my heart starts to beat a little bit too fast. And then I have to be like, okay, Lord, I know you're in control. I know you are. I know the end must be near. And I rejoice about that because I'm looking forward to that day. But Lord, while we're here, why not take as many people with us as we can when the end comes? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just am in complete awe of you, Lord. The reality of who you are and what you've done and how you've included us. And Lord, how you've made it so clear to us in your word, I am in awe of you. I thank you, Lord, for this time, for your word, for the time that we've had, even in this time of isolation, which has given me even more time to be able to open up your word and prepare uh, these words in my heart. Lord, I pray that as we go out step 
by step each day. Lord, we remember that every single step we take is a step of faith, every one of them. Not a single step taken, Lord, without looking to you for direction. I pray, Lord, that in our decisions that we make as we go forward in our personal lives, as a church, as a community, as a country, Lord, that there would be a number lifting it up to you, Lord, in every situation. Lord, I do thank you <laughs> for sending rain when we needed it. Lord, I pray for those who lost their homes in the fire, Lord, but you reminded me that you're doing something, that you're doing something greater than I can see, and so I trust you. I trust you in this COVID-19 situation, Lord. I trust you with my family with, and with my life and with my everything. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here still wrestling with whether there is, are gods in their lives that are greater than the Lord, I pray even this week you would even break down those other gods even further as you did in Egypt to make it absolutely clear and evident to them, Lord. And then, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to someone who can help them understand. And if that's any one of us that can help them, Lord, I rejoice in that opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who is filled with mercy. In fact, your word says that your mercies are new every single morning. Uh, that's because we need them every morning, Lord. So thank you, Lord. As we go out of this place today, I pray that you would protect us all, Lord, that you would continue to hold us uh, in your hand. Lord, keep us healthy, that we might be available to you and to those around us. I thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Hi, this is Pastor Aaron, and I hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. I pray that the Holy Spirit used this message to touch your heart and bring you into a deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't already have a regular church home, please consider joining us as we simply teach the Bible simply each Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. We're located at 3285 Pine Ridge Road in Naples, Florida. You can also find us online at ccnaples.org, where we have links to past messages and more information about Calvary Chapel Naples.